This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including Adam Rutherford's Creation, How Science is Reinventing Life Itself, and Mario Livio's Brilliant Blunders, From Darwin to Einstein, Colossal Mistakes by Great Scientists That Changed Our Understanding of Life in the Universe. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American podcast, Science Talk, posted on September 20th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. On August 7th, Scientific American and Macmillan Science and Education hosted a summit called Learning in the Digital Age at Google's New York City offices. As part of the summit, Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Mariette DiCristina sat down with the host of NPR's immensely popular Science Friday radio program, that's right, Ira Flato, to discuss the teachable moment in science and culture. Now it is my truly distinct pleasure to um, ask a friend and also the host of Science Friday to come to the stage, Ira Flato. I have to say, Ira, I've been a science journalist for more than 25 years, and probably interviewing you is one of the things that I find the most daunting so far about my job. This man who professionally interviews everybody. I still a rookie. I really a rookie. I've been doing it for 40 years. So. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me to come down here. I am so glad Pleasure. you're here. Very happy to be here. And um, I was thinking about a story you told me uh, about your daughter. Right. <laughs> and how you, well, why don't you tell us that? Um, being a science geek myself, I'm always interested in astronomy. Is that the story you're talking that's about? Story, and I was out with my backyard telescope. Um, this is a few years ago when my daughter was 14. If you have a 14-year-old, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, the, the rings of Saturn were just beautiful that night, and they were, you can see it great, and I had my telescope out, and I kept begging her to come out and look at this. And she said, oh, Daddy, don't do this. And I, come on, I don't want to go see it. You're such a nerd. You're blah, 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 blah. I literally grabbed her hand, I pulled her, no, I don't want to see this. I don't want blah, blah, blah. And I took her head, and I shoved it in the eyepiece, and she goes, holy shit. <laughs> you know? She finally got to, you, you lead the horse to water and actually take some you action. Her, you made her drink. Yeah. You can make her drink, and, and, and that's what we do. You know, um, people, love, people love science. I mean, all this, the studies will show you that people love science, but they haven't got the slightest idea what scientists do. And as part of our mission of Science Friday is to tell people what scientists do so that they have an appreciation and an understanding of why it's important in their lives. And I'm listening to all these educators here today. I didn't hear one person say why they should teach science. What courses do they tell their students? Why is science important to them in their classroom? What kinds of careers can they go into? What kinds of benefits can they do? And I haven't heard anybody say, you know, you should teach science because it's enjoyable, because people love to do science who do science. And what we try to do, besides using the news as a hook to talk about science, we want to show that science is done by people. It's done by real people, and this is why they enjoy what they do, and this is how they do it. And it's a, 
And when people hear that, they, they really enjoy listening to it, and they, they love it. Yeah, and you bring out those real people in the conversations that you have. In fact, Ira, you remind me once, I was trying to prove to my boss that everybody really cares about science. They just don't call it that. Yes. So yes. to prove it to him, because, you know, we're very evidence-based at Scientific American, I, I pulled out the, um, the New York Times every day for a couple of weeks and marked all the stories that were actually science stories, but weren't being called that. They were being called energy right. policy, or they were being called cure for diseases, or but they were all science stories. Yes, and there are very few, very few science stories that ever get in the news now. Science sections, as such, such, science sections are closed down. There are very few places to find science. But people, you know, people love science when you can give it to them. And the the entertainment industry has realized this. Why is the Big Bang Theory the most popular show on CBS? You know, because it's a bunch of nerdy people who are all physicists and engineers talking about science. People love to talk about it. Um, why is science showing up in theater? Why is it showing up in film? All these other different places. The problem we have, and the problem I see, is getting past the gatekeepers. And I think the problem edu- educators have is that they're not treating science like they treat art. We're all teaching science like we want these kids to be scientists, but we don't teach them to appreciate science. Like we teach them to appreciate art, although the budgets are gone for art appreciation, but maybe, you know, we could bring back that. But why not teach kids the joy of learning science? Who the scientists were, like who, who the great artists were, what kinds of paintings did they do? Who the great scientists were? What kinds of great discoveries did they do? Why is it important to to know and understand these things? And you might be one of these people someday. You know, you might. And when when we bring science to the public, and when we try to personalize it, it's our way of saying, look, you know, you don't have to be Einstein. You can be a scientist like this and make a small discovery. And, and one of the things I like that you all do at Science Friday is not only are you talking with the scientists and making that real for your audience, but um, you have an education channel on your website, and yes. folks can come and see some interesting things. Yes, we have hundreds of videos that we made, we've made over the years, and we make teaching material out of them. We're actually hiring a new uh, education person who will be full-time doing our educational outreach. Um, we, actually, we are actually the only... Um, the only radio show in, on NPR that ever had an educational outreach. And to match that, to show you how popular science is now with people who love science, the general public, we have the highest social community of any public radio show. All Things Considered, Morning Edition, our Twitter, we have 300, as of yesterday, 380,000 Twitter members. We've got all, you know, higher than any show in public radio. We've got, we're approaching 100,000 Facebook members, growing 1,000 a week. And people look at me and they say, what are you doing right? I say, well, the only thing I'm doing is bringing science to the people. They're getting it, and they love it, and we have to find ways of, you know, more ways of doing that. Yeah, I'd say you're doing, it sounds like you're doing that right. So I think it's an interesting dichotomy, and maybe we can explore this for just a minute. On the one hand, we're talking about Big Bang Theory and, mm-hmm. you know, the growing popularity of, of things that Science Friday is doing and other areas where science is really popular in culture. And on the other side, we're talking about news stories where we don't call them science stories, but they happen to be about it. And what's going on there, and, and uh, are there any lessons we might take about bridging that well i've always i've always found that you have to find uh we used to call them in the media and i worked i did a lot of television you have to find the rabbi who will support you you know (laughs) you have to find the gatekeeper why i did i did science on cbs for a couple of years and the only reason why i was able to do it is because the producer enjoyed science 
And he didn't mind having a science reporter come on and talk about science because he knew if you presented it in the right way that you could make it interesting. And people would lap it up, and they, and they really liked the segment. You have to find people who believe that science is important. And one of the reasons, and one of the ways of doing that is making it a topic of conversation. You force it from the grassroots up. You give people, they give the public stuff they can talk about around the dinner table. They want more of it. They want to talk more about it. Gee, how come this isn't funded? Well, maybe we can get you know more funding to, to get this kind of science done. So that's that's my solution: is to get more people involved. Mm-hmm. I, I think that it sounds like it's a great one and it's working very well. Again, I don't like to have all the fun, although you can see we can have a lot of fun here. Is, does anybody have a question for Ira about making these connections with the public with science? Hi, I'm Deb Pierce from UCLA, and I can say that I struggle with students that are in my science class, and they're there because they enjoy the topic already. But there are times when I struggle in topic selection. Right. It's going to be great. So how do you... Is it just something that you find interesting to yourself? And, yes. And so you- yeah. Well, we have a glut. There's a it's triage that goes on. I'm so sure Mary knows what I'm talking about. There's so much going on every week. Hundreds and hundreds of papers, topics to choose from. We only have a two-hour show, but and it's all really interesting stuff. You know. Well, we pick. Oh, that's a good question. I have a I have a I have a choice. Usually, I have a choice. Um, one, I can find a really interesting paper that no one is going to cover because I can tell it's never going to make it on the media, and I can give some fresh air to that topic or you know, let people talk about it, or I can find a story that everybody's going to cover and say, but we're going to do it a lot better and in a different way. So I have to choose between those two, and usually I go for the smaller one because there are a lot of interesting little stories that are going on. You know, We're going to talk this week, uh, there's a story about the glue that spiders make and stuff that's, you know, the most strongest glue in the world, but no one's heard about it. So it's an interesting aha moment. We're trying to create the aha moment and then to bring on the scientist who does it to see that they're a real person, you know, and they, you know, try to ask them some off-topic questions to see how they think and see how they act as a real person. If we do that, we're successful. Uh, I'm Bob Ubell from NYU Poly. You may have uh, followed my brother Earl on CBS. Earl Bell, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, he was the science reporter on yes, Channel 2. Yes, exactly. I knew Earl for many years. Okay. So uh, the question that I have is, uh, with all of your success and uh, your uh, numbers rising from uh, low numbers to hundreds of thousands these days on uh, media and on social media especially, how do you account for... Uh, the low numbers of students who are entering uh, science and technology? You know, all kids start out loving science. All kids start out, they want to take that Pop-Tart, they used to want to put it in the VCR, now they want to put it in the CD slot. They are natural, right now they're natural experimenters, they want to find out how the world works. Somewhere along the line, we we lose them, you know? And if you ask people who are interested in science, and who stay in science, they usually say, you know, I had a school teacher, I had a mentor, I had a mother, you know. I ask Neil deGrasse Tyson what role model he said he had growing up. He said, what, what black guy in the Bronx is going to be a scientist? There's no role model over there. You know, I might, and you ask him a little more, and his mother was very instrumental in taking him to the Museum of Natural History and the planetarium all the time. And that's what we need to find, good teachers, role models, mentors, parents who will stay interested and, and, and 
keep them interested so they can go through this through high school. As I said, but I also believe that we should not be finding, we should be not be forcing science on all these kids who don't like or are not they're not good at it. We should teach them how to appreciate it and why they should support it. So while other kids can go on to become scientists, these people go on to become voters who vote budgets and understand the meaning behind them all the science that are doing. So they're all participants in it, and some participate in different ways. Hi. Um, I'm from the Simons Foundation. Um, If you had an online, if you were an online content provider, and it was your goal to um, just improve the milieu of science in the U.S., which is a really broad statement, I know, but would you be writing content for the people that are just out of reach or rather a lower level, more basic type of content? If you, What, what do you think would be the most effective? You're, you're asking what, who my audience is, basically. Is that the question? No, I'm asking? not asking who your audience who is. Who I'd I'm like saying, it to be? Yeah, I'm saying if there was a, a website right. um, that wanted to raise a level of education and discourse and appreciation even – um, in the United States or the world, right. would you provide content at a rather lower level, a relatively lower level that was more simple and easy, or would you just take try to grab people that are just outside the fold? We already do in our, in our videos. We have hundreds of videos that are about three minutes long, and they're the most basic science that you can get. And then people say, how do we write? I said, if I can explain it to my mother, I understand it enough to explain it to you. You know? Um, and so we we are looking for ways of taking those videos and making new ones to keep it on a basic level. We can't teach you everything about the topic, but we can teach you the joy and see the aha moments in the topic, and that crosses all boundaries. We make it low, you know, le- a little understandable enough. And I would the kind of website uh, I'd like to build would be more socially interactive. I like to crowdsource questions. Let's use all these people out there, all these students. Let's help have, have them help us solve questions about science. And let's let's help them solve questions about biology or global warming or come up with ideas. They talk to each other. They have a community. When they kid you, we, we I love the I can't remember who said it. Science is done in a social community. That's right. And if you want to do science and spread science, you spread it through a social community. People are part of of a, a unified field, so to speak. And they feel like they're in this together. And that's one of the advantages that we have is we have people sitting around a campfire, you know, with people listening to the same guy. People are talking about it. And in our social communities, we want people to feel like they're part of a group outside of school because the studies are showing that informal science education is where people are learning their stuff. They're only spending 5% of their lives in school. They're getting their education outside of school. We want to be part of that place that's outside of school. We're, you can be a lifelong learner at our spot also. So, you know, we, we have all kinds of ways we, we could do this. But I think, you know, maybe that's a call for all of us to help make those connections outside of school. One last really quick one. So just in terms of that sort of the crowdsourcing thinking of citizen right. scientists, what do you think would be some of the best topic areas to engage people in a citizen science type way well you can do um you can do simple let's say you're you're talking about global warming right let's do temperature checks of your local communities around you know this is this turns out this news out this week that this 2012 was the hottest year on record for the united states how hot was it where you live you know how dry is it how dry is it in texas or where you you know 
Let's keep track of the weather. Let's see if it changes. Can it, does, does it actually mean it's uh, a symptom of global warming, or do you have to see a bigger picture? You can get all these kids involved in collecting all this data. I used to work with uh, the Turk people years and years ago. We used to, when acid rain was a topic of discussion, they crowdsourced. They didn't call it crowdsourcing, but they crowdsourced an idea of how acidic is the rain in your neighborhood, you know? And they, people took samples of, of the rainwater, or, or what's, what's living in your lake? How drinkable is your water? Is your water polluted? Take, you know, what's, what's, what's coming out of your fountain? You know, we, um, or your, your community pool. We did a story a few weeks ago on what's, what's living in your community pool, your swimming pool. And uh, let's send kids out to the community swimming pool and get the water analyzed, and they could... That's something that hits them right where they live, so to speak. You know? And, you know, we then move to the oceans and see what's living in the oceans. So that, that, those kinds of topics where kids really can get excited, but they're also part of a bigger a bigger picture, you know, and I think kids love that. Uh, there is a cool factor that we don't take enough advantage of. You know, stuff is just, we, one of the best comments we ever had on Science Friday was we were talking to a physicist about uh, dark energy. And I said, I'm going to give you the question I know that everybody's going to ask you, and they always ask, why you, what practical value is there from studying dark energy? And it was a little pause, and he said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> And I said, but it's really cool. <laughs> and that's what kids like to hear, you know. They, but they're probably never going to hear about dark energy because it's not something that's brought up in school. You're too busy studying the periodic table and not understanding why that guy thinks dark energy is cool. I, I have to say it was really cool. To talk. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. You're welcome. Thank you very Thank you. much. We'll be right back after this word from Kerry Smith at The Nature Podcast. On The Nature Podcast this week, we ask the big questions about sea level rise, discover what lessons we can learn for climate change from the exploration of America's Great Plains, and feel seasick as we explore the rough waters of Drake Passage at the foot of South America. Listen at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can watch videos of the entire summit, Learning in the Digital Age. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 